This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, if you hate golf and Trump, and who doesn't, you will love our segment on Trump and golf with the legendary New York sports writer Robert Lipsight. And we'll also have a moment without Trump, 50 years ago today, August 24th, 1967, while Trump was a student at the Horton School of Business, Abby Hoffman and his friends invaded the Temple of Capitalism, the New York Stock Exchange. Bruce Dancis was there. He'll explain everything. First up, Frank Rich on how a presidency ends. Frank is writer-at-large for New York Magazine, where he writes about politics and culture. He's also an executive producer of Veep at HBO. Before New York Magazine, he had a wonderful career at the New York Times as an award-winning op-ed columnist, and before that as drama critic. My favorite of his books is the fabulous memoir Ghost Light, which we talked about here a few years ago. We reached him today at Paramount Studios, where he's working on the next season of Veep. Frank Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. You recently immersed yourself in the history of the end of the Nixon presidency. What did you call that? Well, wallowing in Watergate, which was, of course, a phrase that Nixon used yes. because um, uh, in July of uh, 1973, after uh, there had been two months of brutal Senate Watergate hearings, the whole what did you know and when did he know it part of uh, Watergate, uh, Nixon, in his typical sort of pious, phony, faux piety, said, uh, let other people uh, wallow in Watergate. We're going to go back to work, you know, for the American people. Something that we've heard uh, other presidents, including the current one, uh, say when uh, they're under uh, attack for scandal. Of course, we know that times have changed uh, since 1973 and 74. We know the Republicans are different now. But you have found some wonderful stuff from your wallowing in Watergate. I think one of the most striking to me was the New York Times report you found. Our national newspaper of record reported that Americans were feeling, quote, a certain numbness about Watergate, and that congressmen going home for the summer recess found, quote, no public mandate for any action as bold as impeachment, close quote. What do you make of these reports as our representatives head home for this summer's recess? Well, I should say, you know, Nixon resigned in August of 1974. This New York Times report was actually a year before. It was, it was the summer before the year he resigned. What struck me was that was a period when people were saying they were bored with Watergate, and, and Democratic congressmen were telling this to the Times as well from their constituents. It was after the hearings. It was after John Mitchell, who had been both uh, campaign chairman for Nixon and his attorney general had been indicted, and yet people were sort of blowing it off. Uh, Nixon's approval rating had sunk, but into the sort of where Trump's has been fairly recently to the mid to upper 30s, and uh, people were sort of ready to kind of move on. What happened a year later, um, besides many more revelations, was uh, the midterms were approaching. So, and and that's when it all started to run downhill for Nixon. So, if you want to sort of transpose then on to now, this would be July of uh, 73, 
and it's next July as the next midterms are approaching in 2018 uh, that that uh, this would blow up for the current president. Of course, probably the biggest difference between those years and now is that in the Watergate years, the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. Today, of course, it's the opposite. The Democrats hope to retake the House in uh, November 2018. There seems to be no chance they'll retake the Senate. That would seem to be the end of the story, at least as far as impeachment goes. I wonder if you agree with that. I've never felt that Trump would be impeached by a Republican uh, Congress. If it turns out there's a divided Congress in 18, assuming he lasts that long, it also wouldn't happen. But of course, Nixon wasn't impeached either. It was finally voted out of committee, but he resigned uh, under a lot of pressure, including the pressure of possibly uh, going to jail before there was impeachment. Clinton had an actual impeachment, but not Nixon. And I feel that, you know, people have been saying, uh, citing this difference between then and now constantly, well, you know, Nixon was up against a Democratic Congress, so of course he was in bigger trouble than Trump. But that's a, that's actually a misunderstanding of what Congress was, what that Congress was. In the early 1970s, many Democrats, particularly Southern Democrats, were Nixon supporters, including powerful people in the Senate, including Sam Irvin, the Democrat the Southern Democrat who ran the Watergate hearings, who began by saying there's no way in the world Nixon could be guilty of any of this. These are the, the sort of the Dixiecrat Democrats who would ultimately become Republicans, you know, become yeah. the, the, the Richard Shelby's and Jeff Sessions of today, but still were in the Democratic Party. Only Strom Thurmond really had switched over then. So Nixon uh, really actually had a very supportive Congress. Um, and in the end, however, his luck ran out. There are so many divergences between Nixon's story and, and Trump's, especially between the two people. Nixon was a lifelong politician, a history buff, a policy wonk, a lawyer, and a president with many huge achievements. And I don't recall any pussy-grabbing on Nixon's uh, part. No, I don't think there was any <laughs> pussy-grabbing, but also... Indeed, Nixon was a lawyer, a clever lawyer, uh, and so he knew what the rule of law was, even if, as he was breaking it. Yeah. Uh, Trump seems to have, as we know, absolutely no idea. Also, Nixon was keenly aware that you could get in trouble for obstruction, uh, for a cover-up, and he actually used to lecture uh, his staff about it, that the cover-up would, would would get them if the crime didn't, not referring to Watergate because he didn't think he'd ever be caught. He learned that uh, really from his pursuit uh, in the House Un-American Activities Committee days earlier in his career when he went after the State Department, suspected uh, State Department spy Alger Hiss. Alger Hiss uh, was not uh, convicted of treason. He was convicted of perjury. And so Nixon was keenly aware of it, and yet still didn't escape it. Trump is oblivious to to the jeopardy that he or his staff or his relatives in the White House might be in. And so, frankly, almost every aspect of of Nixon uh, that differs from Trump is in in Trump's disfavor. Uh, Nixon was much cannier and wilier than Trump and could have staved off scandal 
uh, a much much better than than Trump seems to be. And there's one more respect in which Nixon was way ahead of Trump, and that was the margin of victory in the 1972 election. Nixon got something like 60 percent of the popular vote. Trump got what 46 percent. Now you may see that that made uh, Nixon overconfident, but on the other hand, he had won a historic victory and had a lot of reason to think that the public was behind him. Absolutely. Indeed, I think possibly the popular vote margin in numbers uh, set a record at that time. He really won in a landslide uh, over McGovern. So uh, he started with a a much bigger base of support um, uh, than Trump did, and indeed entered the White House with much higher approval ratings. And of course, Trump had an historic low approval rating for someone just after inauguration. So the fact is that in almost every, the only place where Trump um, uh, trumps Nixon is that Nixon did have something of a drinking problem, and Trump is the teetotaler. But that's it. In every other way, intelligence, wiliness, legal knowledge, political skills, political support, Nixon was in a much better position to sustain the damage of scandal uh, than Trump is. One of the things that you did in your period of wallowing in Watergate was to read the wonderful contemporaneous columns by Elizabeth Drew. She emphasized that Nixon burned with resentment and always sought revenge on his enemies. That sounds like our current president. It does. He was very paranoid. He he wanted to, you know, get back at enemies, even, you know, he actually had enemies lists, of course, but even he could never forget even a petty grievance. And look, that's like, you know, Trump fighting with Golf Magazine. Um, no, no slight uh, was too small for Nixon to, to want to get revenge. And I think that if his second term had lasted longer than it did, he would have gotten revenge on a lot of people. The other thing that Nixon had in common with Trump was a loathing of the press. He used to tell his staff, right on the blackboard a hundred times, the press is the enemy, uh, you know, very Trumpian language before its time. And Nixon broke with tradition in terms of choosing his press secretary. Up until then, press secretaries always were um, essentially former journalists, like Pierre Salinger with the, uh, Kennedy or Frank Mankiewicz. Nixon hired an actual flack, Ron Ziegler, who had originally been a guide on the jungle ride at Disneyland, oh. Disneyland in Anaheim, <laughs> oh, but had then worked for J. Walter Thompson. That, and the denials of everything that was going on from Ziegler and his staff, top member of his staff, by the way, Diane Sawyer, mm. very much resembled the kind of denials we're hearing from, we heard from Spicer and, you know, and now uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Almost the language is almost word for word. It's a witch hunt. It's ridiculous. It's unsubstantiated. Uh, the president has already uh, been exonerated by previous investigations. All of this was in the Nixon denials, and we're just seeing it almost quoted verbatim now. And there's one other stunning parallel between Watergate and today. What was the Watergate break-in about? It was an effort to steal internal communications from the offices of the Democratic National Committee. Doesn't that sound something like what what the Trump campaign is accused of? Exactly. And it's exactly the same thing and a little 
a sort of forgotten part of it I didn't mention in my New York piece is that the break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at Watergate was a way station. If they had not been arrested, the Watergate burglars were going on to another location in Washington to break into George McGovern's campaign offices. So it's exactly parallel, except for the fact it didn't involve potential collusion with a foreign government. It was all Nixon. It is, it is amazing. I want to. We only got a couple minutes left here, I, and I wanted to ask you to read one of my favorite concluding paragraphs in your piece on how a presidency ends. It's the the perhaps paragraph. I call it. Okay, I'm happy to read it. I'm sort of embarrassed to read my own work, but I will give it a shot. Perhaps Trump won't fire Robert Mueller. Perhaps Mueller will determine that Trump is not guilty of collusion with the Russians, with Trump's voluntarily released tax returns as confirming evidence or of obstruction of justice. Perhaps Mueller will uncover no untoward financial dealings or subversive collaborations with the Kremlin and its network by any of the president's men. Perhaps the courts will find Trump not guilty of violating the emoluments clause that restricts a president from profiting from office. This last was debated as a possible article of impeachment for Nixon. Perhaps Trump will stay out of trouble, stay off Twitter, miraculously avoid perjury, brilliantly staff up the executive branch, and deliver fabulously on his promises to secure cheap health care for all Americans, cut everyone's taxes, and rebuild America's infrastructure. Perhaps Jared Kushner will bring peace to the Middle East and reinvent American government rather than follow his father to prison. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) Or perhaps not. Uh, So, yeah. So after, after wallowing in Watergate, what is your prediction about how the Trump presidency will end? Will it be that the Democratic House, after 2018, will vote articles of impeachment, the Senate will prepare to go to trial, and Mitch McConnell will lead a delegation to the White House to give him the word that he needs to resign? No, I think that I really don't think there's going to be impeachment. I think that essentially Trump at some point this is completely, completely conjecture, just a gut feeling based on what I know about Trump and a little bit about what I know about history, but also about the state of play right now, is that there'll come a point where it will suit him to get out. He doesn't enjoy the job anyway. He's not any good at it. He's some, at some point going to figure out that he's not popular, no matter how many rallies he goes to in Ohio or West Virginia, and that people around him, including uh, conceivably his own son-in-law, are in tremendous legal jeopardy. And you know, I picture a scenario where he gets out somehow, presumably by resignation, which is what Nixon did, and then blames it all on everyone else and says, you know, the swamp got me, the swamp, including Republicans in the swamp, fought me, and and I'm going to go and fight from the outside. This is my fantasy Trump speech. And, you know, we're going to have a sort of a revolution from outside Washington because you can't win within Washington. He always blames someone else for everything else, everything that happens to him. So my feeling is he'll find some way to take his marbles and go home while the getting is good or maybe not so good because we don't know where all, all the Mueller investigations are going to end up. Frank Rich, he wrote about how a presidency ends for New York Magazine. Frank, it's been great having you on the show. Great talking to you as always, John. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. with the Trump Watch podcast. Next up 
If you understand golf, you understand Trump. That's what Robert Lipsight says. Coming up in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener with the Trump Watch podcast. Later in this hour, our moment without Trump, Abby Hoffman's Wall Street action 50 years ago today. But first, if you hate golf and Trump, and who doesn't, then you will love Robert Lipsight's report on Trump and golf. He's a legendary sports writer and columnist for the New York Times and the award-winning author of more than a dozen books on sports, fiction and nonfiction, many for young adults. He's also the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch and a contributor to The Nation. We reached him today at home on Shelter Island at the far end of Long Island in New York. Robert Lipsight, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Donald Trump plays golf, and golfers are key supporters of his, the country club Republicans. But you see evidence that he is alienating even the country club Republican golfers. Yeah, I think ultimately he will. There are, there are two golf courses, clubs, on Shelter Island. One is very much working class. The other is certainly, you know, in the at least the two percent, if not the one percent. I think there's a kind of a streak of conservatism through both of them that really has to do with rules, with the uh, the codification of games, of of how we purport to live our lives. And I must say, I I despise the game almost as much as I despise Trump, but. The, the heart of it is the idea that golf, of course, operates on the honor system, even though most of the presidents who played have cheated. But <laughs> golf does operate on, on, on the honor system. And the idea is that, you know, if, if you hit a bad shot, you don't ignore it and do it over again. You take the penalty. I, I think that this is part of that kind of character that that golf is supposed to be a crucible of. Yes. But I, I, I think that when you have somebody like Trump who cheats, uh, who takes shots over again all the time, and then in, in probably the most grievous sin is he drove his golf cart onto the green, that, that kind of little patch of very meticulously cosseted grass with the hole in the middle. <laughs> and the whole idea of keeping the green pristine is because the good golfer, and I must say, uh, from all I've seen, uh, Trump is a good golfer. The good golfer is able to look at the green. It's called reading the green to kind of understand you know, the curves and angles on the grass so that you can make your final putts. To drive his cart onto that is, is really, I guess, like pissing on the Vatican wall. That really is an ultimate affront, a, a kind of violation of what is considered sacred in the sport. Golf is played at private clubs that have a history of excluding people of color and women. But you say 
there's more to golf than racism and sexism. There's also the environmental problems the golf course raises. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question that all that land that is really very carefully domesticated carries a lot of fertilizer. It's easy and liberal to say, you know, be great for affordable housing, which, of course, it would be. But there really is an advantage to open land, and that's um, that's called breathing. And I think some so much of that open land, that golf land, could be walking trails, could be park land, could be, you know, just open to people. As it is, it's uh, for very rich people. It's expensively kept in shape. And, of course, in, in the northern part of the country, it's really only available about half the year. And I've, I've read of golfers complaining of breathing problems and dizziness from all the chemicals that they put on, especially on the greens. Right, of course. And, you know, for a golf course to really be in top-notch condition, available for major tournaments and for uh, expensive members, uh, I, I think you do really need to pour in a lot of chemicals. You've got to, uh, got to keep it up. You've described the, the golf culture that Trump is part of as consisting of successful greed heads and wannabes. But, but what about the zen of golf? You know, a man alone with all his weaknesses facing the ball that lies still. Isn't that a profound test of character and self-knowledge? I think there are a lot of profound ways to test yourself and to learn about yourself. And I think thrashing a little white ball that can't hit you back <laughs> may not be quite at the top of the list, John. Okay. I, I think that I, I find something bizarre in this idea of, of golf as the hero's journey. I mean, come on. What it's basically there for, and, and by the way, on, on what hero's journey can you also eat smoke and and make hedge fund deals. <laughs> um, I, I think that business and the applications of business are really one of the main functions of golf. For women uh, who have been unable to, to crack a lot of the C-suites, is that they uh, you know they don't belong to clubs. Uh, they don't, in a sense, participate in, in what I call urinal society. I mean, I think that so much. <laughs> of the real business of business gets done. Two guys, you know, peeing together in the clubhouse <laughs> and one turns to the other and says, so uh, what are you going to do about that new trucking deal? Uh -huh. And I think that's how a lot of business is taken care of, whether it's in the clubhouse, on the greens, in the bathrooms. And I, I think that it's that kind of access and uh, easy sociability, uh, which is very important to business. You say that there's a sort of a working class golf course out there on Shelter Island. In, in my neighborhood in L.A., there are, there are several public courses. I near, live near one called Rancho Park, where you can play 18 holes for $35.50 on weekdays, $21 if you're a senior. Doesn't that make golf a, a game for the little guy? Yeah, sure. There's no question about it that, that the little guy can play golf. He can't be too little because he does have to, he, he does need clubs. Yeah. And he probably needs the time, the, you know, the three, four hours it takes to go around the clubs. 
but yes, you're absolutely right. And most of the grief that I've taken is from my friends who are consider themselves working class golfers who say, you know, what about us? And I say, yeah, what about you? I think it's terrific that you play this little game, but you're not the ones who keep it going. And as a matter of fact, golf is fading as a sport. Really? Uh, fewer people are playing it. More golf clubs are failing than are being built. I don't think that the next generation has the, uh, the time or the inclination for this kind of leisurely pursuit. But I think also remember that these working class golfers are really buying into what Trump himself calls the aspirational aspect of golf. Yeah. There is a sense that golf steps you up in class. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Trump himself says that, you know, it shouldn't be too easy to play golf should have to work really hard and make a lot of money so you can really join a good club like one of mine uh, so that golf really means something. I think that, you know, there are, there are lots of, you know, I'm sure firemen and cops and uh, people who have stretches of free time who play golf. But again, I think that the pull of golf is really, you know, what you see on weekends on television in these great vast green Valhalla-looking clubs, and in the idea of the rich golfers and the the pro golfers who are, you know, a kind of emerging class of athlete in America, who, by the way, are, I think, just about, in my my history, just about the only athletes who are listed not by, you know, batting averages or how many rings uh, they've won or, you know, most valuable player awards by money earned. I think the money list is really the key to who are the top golfers. And I, I suspect that even though he, you know, hasn't won anything in ages, Tiger Woods is still at the top uh, as, as one of the world's leading clothing models. Well, let's get back to Donald Trump for a, a minute here. He's more than a golfer. Of course, he owns and operates uh, luxury golf courses and owns the clubs, and he employs lots of people at his uh, golf courses and golf clubs. Tell us about Trump as an owner and an employer of uh, golf courses and clubs. You know, any time that he plays golf or talks about golf, he is, in a sense, promoting his brand. I mean, I don't think that anybody, I can't think of any politician in history who has done as well as he has in promoting his private businesses, you know, while he's purportedly doing taxpayer work. You know, it's, it's interesting that for a long time, he was beating Obama up about playing so much golf and, uh, you know, not attending to business. And, and, you know, in his first six months, on the job, he has beaten Obama. I mean, I, I, he's he's destroyed Obama's legacy as a golf player. <laughs> um, but I, I think the only president that we know about who used to sneak off to play golf anywhere near as much as Trump was JFK. Kennedy was supposedly a very good golfer, bad back at all, and he would slip away a lot to play golf. And it was kept quiet because he 
in turn, had made a big deal about Ike Eisenhower being the, quote, duffer in chief, <laughs> and made it very clear that when he was president, he was not going to be, you know, wasting time being a putz. But <laughs> I think that what happened with JFK was because he also had a real reputation, as we know, for, uh, you know, for playing around. And so, after after a while, when there was so many unexplained absences, his his press guy Pierre Salinger decided that they had to make it clear that he was sneaking off to play a round of golf, not to play around. <laughs> that he wasn't sneaking off, you know, to have a, a tryst. Last question: You say to understand golf is to understand Trump. Please explain. Well, there are aspects of there are aspects of golf that play really into Trump's character. One way to do better in golf is cutting corners. In this case, the, you know, if if you if you take a bad shot and want to take it over again, and they let you do it, your partners let you do it. It's it's called taking a mulligan. Actually, Clinton did it so often, it became called taking a billigan. <laughs> but but I, I think that the idea of this lazy man sport, I mean, it is a lazy man sport. I mean, he, he can't even walk around. He has to go in a cart. Yeah. I mean, it would be better, uh, better exercise if he actually walked or even if he carried his clubs. But, you know, we can't really get into that because except for Chris Christie, I don't think that body shaming is allowed in America anymore. That's certainly, not in the, certainly not among nation readers. So right. But in any case, so back, back to golf. So it's, it's a plutocratic sport. Played at its highest level, it's with extremely expensive equipment. Uh, it's in places that cost enormous amounts of money to join. I mean, his Mar-a-Lago club when he became president, the uh, the membership uh, initiation fee jumped from a hundred grand to two hundred mm. grand. Again. The, the perk of a president's golf club. Look who you could schmooze with, or said that you were schmoozing with. The, the joke always was that golfers and fishermen were the biggest liars in explaining how good they were. And the only difference was that fishermen had to show some evidence. They had a fish. Golfers do not. Everybody, as they get older, become better golfers, uh, at least in their stories. So you lie, you cheat, you socialize. It's a sport that's not really a sport. It's a sport that's traditionally been exclusionary, that's been racist, that's been sexist, and is befouling the environment with chemicals. So how much more do you want to you know, <laughs> uh, compare Trump and golf? Robert Lipsight, the legendary sports writer. Read him at thenation.com and Tom Dispatch. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That was fun. And now for something completely different. 50 years ago, on August 24th, 1967, Abby Hoffman invaded the heart of American capitalism, the New York Stock Exchange, on Wall Street. 
Abby is gone, but Bruce Dances is still with us, and he was there. He wrote a book about that era. It's called Resistor, a story of protest and prison during the Vietnam War. We reached him today at the Three Arrows Cooperative Society, a socialist summer community in Putnam Valley, New York. Hi, Bruce. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking with us about this. Well, let's set the scene here for August 1967. Lyndon Johnson was president. Donald Trump was a 20-year-old student at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. He was getting a student deferment that kept him from being drafted and sent to Vietnam. And that summer, he was working for his father's uh, real estate firm, uh, refusing to rent to black people. What were you doing in August 1967? Well, I, like, like Donald Trump, I'm a New Yorker. I was from the Bronx. He was from Queens. But at that point, I had dropped out of Cornell University to work full-time in the anti-war movement. Um, around seven months before that, I had at a rally at Cornell. I had given a speech against the war and the draft. I tore up my draft card. I said I would no longer cooperate with selective service. And a few months after that, I was indicted. So in the summer of 67, I was under indictment for that. I found out later that um, um, the FBI was uh, investigating me and some others for organizing a mass draft card burning that happened in April 67, and they were considering uh, conspiracy indictments against us. Uh, Fortunately, that never came to pass. So the summer of 67 had me in New York City getting into a lot of trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who was Abby Hoffman in the summer of 1967? Abby was going through his transition from a civil rights worker with SNCC to a digger and then finally to the famous Yippie, who many people knew of for his actions at the Pentagon and uh, where he planned to levitate the Pentagon in October 67. And then a year later, his actions at the Democratic Convention, something that you wrote a book about. So, Thank you. Um, yeah, no, but uh, I met Abby when I was organizing the draft card burning. He was very supportive. I think he had a 4F, and he might have been oh, too old to be drafted, but he, he supported the draft resistance movement, and we stayed in touch during that summer when I was working with the Mobilization Committee Against the War and with the resistance that was planning a draft card tournament. We, we would become friends during that summer. So, um, I th yeah, I think we both shared an understanding. We had, very, we, we had differences in our politics, but that it was imperative upon the anti-war movement to come up with some new ways of protesting in order to get any kind of attention because the media was already stopping to cover what we were doing, no matter how many thousand people we would turn out for a demonstration or a protest. So tell us about August 24th, 1967. What happened from your perspective? Okay, well, I was on... Abby called me at the resistance office a few days before then, saying he's planning this action at the stock exchange. Uh, do you think I could come and bring some people with me? Uh, and I said, yes, but there's one problem. Um, that day I'm going to be on trial with 11 others for a sit-in we had done at a U.S. Navy destroyer on Hiroshima Day, August 6th. We had been arrested for resisting arrest, unlawful assembly, disorderly conduct, and my personal favorite, masquerading in public. <laughs> wait, a minute, wearing... wait, wait a minute. Yes. What did you do to masquerade in public at the protest <laughs> on Hiroshima well, Day? <laughs> right. Well, we worked with the group called the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is a group that Abby also had done some work with, which is a very... Um, 
very innovative uh, theatrical troupe that did these incredible giant masks and shrouds and coffins and things like that. They were a fixture at protests against the war in New York City. And with their help, we made a bunch of death masks, which we then paraded in front of a docked U.S. Navy destroyer to protest the war in Vietnam, and they're opening up the the destroyer on Hiroshima Day, which we thought was kind of an abomination. Uh, so we were on trial in New York courts that morning, but I told Abby, so we couldn't come in the morning, but there's usually a two-hour lunch break. So he said, okay, we can do it at noon. So what we did, I came down with a bunch of friends, and we ran downtown to Wall Street from the criminal courts building, and that's where we met Abby outside the stock exchange. And what, um, uh, what, what was the plan, and how did it go? The plan was very loose. The plan was somehow for us to get into the visitor's gallery, which then uh, had no screen separating it from the stock exchange floor down below, and throw dollar bills onto it. And Abby had gotten someone uh, to give him either 100 or $200, one never knew for sure how much it was, in $1 bills just for this action. And so we, we started to walk into the visitor's gallery. Now, Abby looked as scraggly as people may remember him, and he got stopped by the, uh, by the guard and said, what are you doing here? Well, you know, he didn't know who Abby was, but he certainly was scruffy looking. And he said, you can't do a demonstration in here. And Abby said, well, you're not letting me in because I'm Jewish, <laughs> which totally flustered the guy. But then, when, see, those of us who had been at court that day, like I was wearing a jacket and tie. I was in court. The women in our group were wearing dresses and, uh, you know, skirts and blouses. We were sort of dressed for success, you know. So we came charging in behind Abby, and since we kind of looked straighter than we really were, we all got in, and then Abby and others ran in. So probably around 20 of us. So we're looking down on the exchange below, and we start throwing $1 bills. And having never thrown a dollar bill, I was amazed at how long it took to waft down, you know, like a story or two down to the floor below. Um, at first, it was stunned silence from the floor. There are thousands of people down there running around, the traders and all that, and just, you know, us two dozen or so up on the, up in the visitor's gallery. And then... We, then we started hear people start scurrying around to pick up, up all, pick up all the money they could. Some started cheering us for throwing money. Others started <laughs> cursing us and yelling at us, telling us to get the hell out of there. And then within a short, this whole thing took about a couple of minutes, we rushed out. We were back on the sidewalk, and nobody got arrested. <laughs> There's a picture of you guys rushing out the door. Abby is laughing gleefully, and you're, you're still in your, your uh, dressed up for your uh, trial uh, right. that day, but you're, you're kind of smiling too. I'm smiling too. No, it was pretty funny. I mean, we, we, you know, we, it was a lighthearted action and Abby had called a lot of reporter friends. I mean, the reporters there from the local TV stations, the New York times, the daily news, the New York post, the alternative press. It's funny because later on in two of his books, in his, uh, revolution for the hell of it. And then, um, soon to be a nation motion picture, he said, we didn't even bother calling the press. Well, that's not true. They were all there and somebody called them. But uh, uh, we had fantastic coverage. I mean, we were on the cover of the New York Post that afternoon. You know, the whole notion of the hippie invasion of the New York Stock Exchange was kind of too much for people to pass up in the <laughs> mass media. And how do you think about the, the uh, Stock Exchange uh, action uh, today, 50 years later? 
Well, you know, we were trying to make a, a little statement with a touch of humor about greed in America, and which is embodied by the stock exchange. So I don't know if we did something. Now you couldn't do it because a few months after our action, they erected some bulletproof glass, so preventing people from doing that kind of thing. But I, I know the irony of it might be lost on people now. You know, clearly if, we, if our goal of the demonstration was to harm, you know, those forces that are trying to make massive amount of money on the backs of other people, you know, we didn't do so well. But it was, a, you know, it was a small statement that because of its nature got a lot of attention, you know, to say that not everybody is scurrying after wealth. <laughs> and uh, one, uh, so, and then what happened to all of you then? Where did your uh, trajectory take you? Where did Abby's take him? Well, Abby went very shortly after that. Um, the mobilization committee decided to organize the uh, confrontation at the Pentagon, which took place on October 21st, 1967. Uh, that whole fall was an incredible time of anti-war actions, uh, draft resistance, draft card turn-ins in October and December. So I moved along that line. Abby sort of became famous. You know, he was, uh, he sort of became his own movement unto himself. He, he started to hang out with Jerry Rubin, and, you know, they worked on the Pentagon demonstration. Their claim was they were going to levitate it. You know, and then he formed the Youth International Party. At one point, he asked me if I wanted to become the upstate New York representative, and I declined. I was more, at that point, into draft resistance, and I was very active in Students for a Democratic Society, SDS. So we were, we were diverging a little bit, but we, we remained friends, you know, for, for many years afterwards, um, even though we sort of moved in somewhat different directions. And what happened with your trial that day? Well, my, we, <laughs> miraculously, we were acquitted. Turns out, although we tried to block the gangplanks, we didn't do a very good job of blocking the gangplank. And we had some, there was some documentary film crew from Europe who was doing a whole story on us, planning this demonstration, making the masks and the death shrouds and all that. So we actually had footage showing us trying to sit in front of the gangplanks, being pushed aside, people getting on. So the, they, they threw out the whole, uh, the, all the charges. We were acquitted on all accounts. You know, I found out later that the law for masquerading in public actually went back into the 1840s. It was a New York State law that was used against tenant farmers who dressed up like Native Americans oh. to raid uh, the great houses of the big landowners in the Hudson Valley in New York State. An action very much like the you know the Boston Tea Party. Amazing. And Amazing, you, yeah. uh, so you were acquitted that day, but eventually you were convicted and sent to federal yes. prison. How did that happen? Yeah, I, uh, I finally went on trial for destroying my draft card uh, in, um, uh, in 1968. I was convicted in 69, and I spent uh, most of 1969 and 1970 in federal prison in Ashland, Kentucky. I got paroled in 1971 and went on with my life, and I've been an activist ever since. <laughs> One more thing. You are speaking sure. to us today from the Three Arrows Cooperative Society, a socialist summer community in Putnam Valley, New York. What is the Three Arrows Cooperative Society? 
Okay. Well, the three arrows were the symbols of the European socialists who were fighting Hitler in the early uh, in the early 1930s. It was founded 81 years ago by members of the Socialist Party. These are followers of Norman Thomas, uh, Eugene Victor Debs, uh, people active in the trade union movement. My parents were active in it, and it was started out as a summer colony for people. You know, I think it was country living at uh, proletarian prices, <laughs> and we've managed to live all these years starting out as, you know, people building little shacks and cabins, and eventually, as time went on, people finishing their houses. We have 75 families living here, and I've been lucky to, I was born into the place, and uh, I'm lucky enough to still be part of it. I'm now the president of the society, and, um, you know, it's where I live half the year. And when did the Three Arrows, when was the Three Arrows Cooperative Summer Community founded? Founded in, uh, let's see, 1936. Wow. Right, yeah. No, we've got a long, a long and storied tradition. Um, um, that, no, it's, it's, we're trying to, it's an experiment of participatory, participatory democracy that works most of the time, doesn't work all the time, but, you know, we're still around live and kicking, and I think we're thriving. Bruce Dancis, he joined Abby Hoffman 50 years ago today, August 24th, 1967, in the historic raid on the New York Stock Exchange. He wrote about it in his book, Resistor, a story of protest and prison during the Vietnam War. Bruce, thanks for reminding us what happened. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Frank Rich of New York Magazine. He talked about wallowing in Watergate. We also spoke with Robert Lipsight about why, if you understand golf, you understand Trump. Thanks to our engineer today, Ernesto Orellano, to our producer, Alan Minsky, and to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Tune in next week for another episode of the Trump Watch podcast.